0: Good morning. My name is Julie Steele, and I am going to be reading our scripture this morning for us. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 22 from the New American Standard Bible. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed away, passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so the other dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. For this is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? The Word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here at the church. If you're here for the first time, especially, I want to welcome you to church today. We are continuing in our series in this book, Life Under the Sun, and we're asking the question, what's the point? I'm waiting. What's the point? Do you know? Today, I want us to think about our absolute need for the final word on human drama, on human life, and human history. I think we are all tired of the he said, she said. And today I happen to mean this literally uh, in a political sense. I'm tired of the he said, she said. I want the third story, the true story. Don't you want that? Don't you want the classified documents? What's happening? What's true? What's right? What ought to be? I want to put everything, the whole drama, to rest. I think we need a judge. We need maybe the judge. Who's right? Who's wrong? What prevails? What's the key to life? Is it grit? Is it luck? Is it character? Is it competence? Is it your network? Is it your bloodline? Is it your inheritance? Is it where you went to school? Everyone has got some theory on life and what the key to success is or happiness. What matters at the end? That's the question we want to ask today. I want to tell you a story this, this week, I had two paddle boards on my car, my bride to my right in the car. We're driving about three, four minutes from our house to the waterfront. We're driving north on West Mercer Way. We turn left on 32nd to head two blocks down to Proctor Landing, a little spot where paddle can launch about a block in after I turn left onto 32nd. A red pickup truck who's perpendicular to me decides not to slow down or stop to make a right turn onto my road, and it's my road because I have the right of way because I'm going straight. So we sort of both come to a slowdown, and I obviously, obviously, the good Lord knows, the judge knows. That I have the right of way, but you know what he does? He speeds up. And he cuts me off and he speeds down one block to the parking lot of Proctor Landing. And I pull in behind him and we park right next to each other. Do you feel it already? Do you feel the do you feel the male ego? I mean, what's what's gonna happen next? What's the feeling? We are both there so that we can both de-stress from the day. I have a little more riding on my shoulders because my, like I said, bride is next to me. And uh, Susie, knowing me after 20 years, she says, don't say anything. (laughs) Peter, shut up. And I was fully, 100% prepared to comply But you have to get out of the car, and you can't be slow about it. I can't sit there like I'm waiting for him to leave. That's my ego now, speaking. So I have to get out of the car. I get out, and our eyes meet, because he was feeling the same thing. And I was thinking to myself, don't say anything, Peter. Shut up, shut up, shut up. And then he says, no stop sign. No stop sign. And I had to say something. So I say, I was going straight. You were turning, and I wanted to finish my sentence, but before I can get my final word in, he walked away. I didn't get to say right of way. Because that would settle it. But here's the worst part I didn't tell you. When we came to that sort of like slowdown at that intersection, you know what he did? Now, everybody do this. Shrug your shoulders. Got that? Now, put your arms out like this. Okay? Now put it down. Now one more part to this. Jut your neck out forward. Now do that all at the same time. In my opinion, that's worse than the finger. Do you have a brain? Are you even thinking? What is wrong with you? That's what he said to me in the car when I had the right of way. Do you realize how provoked I was? How right I was? How much I needed, if he said anything, to say I had the right of way. And I would have added, buddy. <laughs> Don't ask me if I shrugged my shoulders back. Because that's, that's just the reaction. You can't help not shrug. Back to that person. So, who's right in that story? Do you realize even the person closest to you has a differing view than you? If you ask Susie what happened, she has a slightly different story. And if I wasn't preaching and I was just telling it to you, I have a slightly different story. I have a different story than the preacher, I. Who's right? Who finally decides what is going on? I'm tired of the human drama. I really, really am. I don't know what the deal is anymore. There's a lot to glean from this chapter. For example, there's this little phrase, God has set eternity in our hearts. We could do a whole series just on that alone. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote essays on this idea that God has put eternity in our hearts. And if he didn't, we would be just the result of a materialistic process, and we wouldn't have human consciousness. We'd have no eternity to compare time to, so we wouldn't be conscious of time at all. We would just exist like a rock. And rocks think about nothing, right? And nothing is that thing which rocks dream of. So there's a lot. This is an incredibly loaded chapter. But the center of all of the spokes, the wisdom and the principal spokes that go out, the central principle is found in verse 17. Verse 17 says, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. And in my opinion, there should be quotes around righteous man and wicked man. Because who's saying this man is righteous? Who is saying this man is wicked? Whose perspective is this? Whose labeling is this? Whose system, grid, is placed on these men that they get to decide one is righteous and one is wicked, right? For a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. God will judge. And uh, in my opinion, in my opinion, whether you believe in a God or not, you need a judge. Your heart, your mind wants a judge you want somebody to have say so you have some need for a king some order a plan a goal a purpose some direction maybe even at worst a redemptive plan you want in your heart of hearts a perfect economy something that works because listen what if there is no judge what if God isn't the judge? I know that Christianity catches a lot of flack for saying God is the judge. And we Christians get accused of being judgmental, which is not great. However, however what if there was no judge? Then what? Then you have to be the judge. You have to shrug back. You have to say right of way. You have to. Because somebody has to. You can't just let chaos prevail. Jerks can't just exist unpunished. I have to be noted. There has to be some record. There has to be somebody sitting on the bench to whom we all look to. Because if you don't have one, you have to be one. And guess what? Your neighbor doesn't think you should be one. What would our existence be if every single person felt they should be the judge? Okay, too big. What if your spouse thought they should be the judge? How would that life go? So this is the good news, and this is the central principle. God will judge, period. And I'm telling you, you need one. Whether you believe in God or not, without a judge, you're lost. Verse 14, everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. That means that everything else, because God is the judge, because He's the one who gets to set eternity in our hearts, because He alone is eternal. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is relative to God, powerless. And eventually it's effect. Because it doesn't have the power of verdict, it's zero. So going back to my mundane little story, what that guy in the red truck thinks about me doesn't matter. Who cares? Who cares? Do you care? I don't care. He's just another guy just like me just like you he's not the judge his opinion has faded and it's long been washed off in Lake Washington that's why it's such a dirty lake all these ridiculous false judgments are at the bottom of that lake Nothing is quiet as it seems, all of the powers, all of the institutions. Nothing gets to determine the ultimate meaning of your life or your identity or your value or your purpose. Isn't that good news? What if that guy had power over me? What if I feel shrugged at all day? All day I just feel... Bear the shame and the failure of deserving the shrug with the craning neck. (laughs) That's no way to live. But it doesn't matter. Scripture says it's not by strength nor power, but by God's Spirit. It's God's Spirit that determines What is and what will be and what will remain, what counts, what we ought to care about and focus on and work towards. He determines the meaning, not just of our life, but of every day. It's not nature, it's not nurture, it's not your parents, it's not your children. It's not luck or work or misfortune or circumstance. Ultimately, the only wisdom that stands the test of time is God himself. It's his eyes on you that determine who you are. Now again, if you don't believe in God, then whose eyes matter? For whose eyes do you live? If God's eyes aren't on me. I have to live for your eyes. And that's no way to live. You shouldn't be judged. You don't have the right to be judged. You don't have the wherewithal to be judged. You weren't designed to play the role of judge. That's not your gift. That's not your talent. You don't have the ability to judge as judgments ought to happen. And I don't want to live under your eyes. You don't want to live under mine. We need God. Amen. This is good news. Uh, we see this also right away in verse 1, the famous uh, almost uh, poem there. There is an appointed time for everything is how the chapter starts. The verses that follow, it's not about time. We like to talk about time. There's a time for this and a time for that. But really, the central uh, wisdom there, uh, it's not about the utter importance of time, but it's about the pervasive, eventual, unfolding reign and economy of God, what the author calls appointed time. What's appointed time? Even when I say that, what, does that, what, does, what words, ideas conjure up in your mind? In the Greek there are two words for time there is the word chronos and there is the word kairos chronos is chronological that's where we get that word from but kairos is talking about a pointed time talking about a larger narrative so even in our american language we see this right when you talk about that was good Timing. What does that mean when you think in your mind that was good timing? It means that, oh, this thing that just happened, I didn't really have control over it. There were other larger pieces at play. And you're implying some sort of serendipity, aren't you? You're implying a larger narrative to which this moment connects. And there's somebody else larger than you at work, Authoring this moment, right? That's timing. That's why we feel graced upon when there's good timing. We feel on the receiving end of a power, a good power towards us. And the author is saying, that's not an accident. There's an appointer to the appointed time. So, then the ideas follow. Birth or death. Planting, uprooting, killing, healing, tearing down, building up, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, although although there may be a thin line for Asians and white people between mourning and dancing. They're two separate things, folks. Scattering, gathering, embracing, shunning, Persevering, giving up, keeping, discarding, tearing apart, sewing together, being silent and speaking, loving, hating, war and peace. This isn't saying that death is good or that war is good. Or shunning is good. What this is saying is there is a larger plan. There's a larger narrative that these things are connected to. It's part of one story. These aren't random happenings. These aren't just misfortunes or circumstances that we're subject to. And now we have to find some sort of plan B that we can sort of muster up ourselves. We're not inventing life. This is giving us reason to have faith that there is a God, there is a judge, there is such a thing as appointed time. And that ultimately, ultimately nothing has the power to undo, outdo, overcome, outlast God's love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because God has appointed him to be the final judge. Because God's appointing is the final word on human meaning and history and if you believe, everlasting future. Someone, someone is going to appear one final day. And through his eyes, you will see. And then and only then will you finally know. And as you know, once you know, scripture's pro- the scripture promises every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's judge. Even that moment, he says, has been appointed. Once to die and then the judgment. Do you feel it? Even if you don't believe in God or the Christian God or a specific God or an institutionalized God, you still feel the deep need for someone who finally has the power to appoint and to judge. One who must be feared by man, institution, power, or random jerk. Someone who will see all and will set all right. Doesn't this political season... Terrorism, societal injustice, violence against women and children, abusive situations, bad drivers, cheaters, liars. Don't these things bring you to some sort of boiling point and cause you to say, where is God? Because you can't do it, and she can't do it, and he can't do it, and they can't do it. Doesn't your fruitless toil, as man or beast, as this passage says, the futility of justice or the reward for wickedness, or the eternity in your heart make you mad and fatigue you enough to cry out for someone, anyone to just take over? David Brooks this week said this. He says, Sometimes in that blood-drenched world, a dark night arises. You don't have to admire or like this night. But you need this knight. He is your muscle and your voice in a dark, corrupt, and malevolent world. Such has been the argument of nearly every demagogue since the dawn of time. Now, if you're here and you're willing to believe in a God, and God, and maybe even Christ Jesus who is God, then this is good news. This is good news. And based on that good news, I have two application points for us today. They're out of verse 9 uh, through verse 14. I'm going to read it for us one more time. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart yet so that men will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks, he's good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God, for God has so worked that men should fear him. And what these verses are doing is it's describing a way of being your energy, the nature of your presence and existence in our world, given the primary principle that God is judge. And we live in appointed times. So application point number one is shut up, shut up, shut up. And you can't say it once. You can't say it twice. You have to say it three times. Because you don't listen until it's the third time. And you're not saying it to other people. You're saying it to yourself. This is not rude. This is coaching. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Let God do his work. You be quiet. You stop talking. Stop judging. Stop trying to be God. Stop taking your own judgments so seriously. I know you care what you think. Your neighbor, however, has a different view. Your neighbor doesn't care as much what you think. They're so busy caring about what they think. How many of you think if everybody talked more, this world would be a better place? If everybody judged more and everybody believed in their heart of hearts, their judgments were right the world would be a better place. Do you think the world would be a better place if you shut up a little? If you stopped judging a little? You understood on some deep heart level that you ought to be humble, that you don't get to have final say? Like it would have been better if the guy went, and I was like, doo, 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 doo. or I said, I'm sorry, if I just put my hand up, just this gesture would have shut the whole thing down. You know how I felt when I went into Lake Washington with my bride on my paddle boards? I felt dirty. I felt unworthy of the holy moment. I go, to, I go paddle boarding for three reasons one, for exercise, two, for the immersive experience, but three, Three, and this is the final one, for the awe. It's not worth my time if I don't experience awe. When I'm out on the middle, in the middle of the lake, Mount Rainier is smiling at me, and I'm on my paddle board, I feel a sense of freedom and vulnerability, invincibility and vulnerability. And I feel awe. Prayers and songs come out of me. I have a third perspective. I see, I catch a glimpse of maybe what God sees. It's a rare balcony moment I get to have. And that moment was gone. The energy, the negative energy was surging in my veins because I didn't shut up. If I had just shut up, what value did it add for me to go back to him? For me to feel this need to say right of way, do you care? I don't care either. And in my heart, I know I don't care. Why did I do that? So that's application point number one. Just shut up, shut up, shut up. Oscar Wilde, a quote I've mentioned before, he says, seriousness is the only refuge of the shallow. I wish I could have not taken myself so seriously because my taking myself so seriously made me so shallow. Ugh, I had to fight on that shallow level. It's so boring, so shallow to do that. But it takes depth to say sorry. It takes depth to protect the awe moment. Okay? Second application point, do good work. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't seek purpose in your work. I certainly do. I think I want meaning. I want productivity. I want fit in my work. But what this passage is saying is if God is the ultimate determiner of meaning in your life, you get to take some of the pressure off of your job. Does your day job have to be extracted for significance? Just do the labor, this pastor is saying, if God is the judge, and he's the appointer, and he's the author of your life, and your goal in life is not to find extract meaning out of your day job, but to fear God, but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, you can do that in the job you have. You can fear God in the job you have. You can do that work with joy and with integrity, breathe with prayer. You can love people through your work. You can work your conscience. You can figure out how to experience joy. It doesn't have to be your end-all, be-all food source for your soul. It just doesn't have to be. Now, uh, a more extreme example of this is your marriage. If you are married to someone, you don't have to extract joy and meaning and love from that person. And as soon as you figure that out, and you release your grip on the other person, you begin to understand how to love and how to be happy. Similar to your work. Let your work work. Be work. Enjoy your work. Figure it out. There is a way to enjoy the labor, but you don't have to find all meaning and all purpose in the work itself. I want to conclude by reading first John uh, chapter 1, verse 1 uh, through 14, with some verses skipped out here. In the beginning. John says, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, Full of grace and truth. Words are powerful. Words define reality. That's what a sermon is. Using my sermon, I get to help define the way you experience reality. But I don't have the final word. Guess who the final logos, the meaning, the word is? It's Christ and God as judge, has appointed Christ to be the final word. And his word over us is blessing. And his word over us is love. His word over us is light and not darkness. I think we want to say yes to this judge, this word who became flesh, who dwelt among us. He who came down, condescended to our level, to show us, not just tell us the true story, reality itself. And I pray that from his vantage point, we can see ourselves and our world, especially in today's time. In Jesus' name, amen.